You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Carl Smith. Uh, Carl, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Carl Smith. Uh, I'm Vice President for Federal and Economic Policy at the Tax Foundation and a blogger at Bloomberg Opinion, or columnist, I guess, at Bloomberg Opinion. Um, yeah, are there even bloggers anymore? No one. <laughs> not really. I mean, I was I was a blogger back in the day, but you know they've they've converted us all. Yeah, yeah not too, not too many people still call themselves bloggers, uh, except for maybe blogging heads is, the, is where the last holdout. Uh, and so, thanks for coming back on. You you were on a uh, long time viewers may remember you coming yeah. on uh, probably around 2010 or so uh, and talking about um, economics back then. And I guess you know around that time was probably we're starting to crawl out of the. Um, the Great Recession, and and now we have this new um, craziness that's that's happening, and and obviously everyone knows about. So I wanted to, I asked you on um, because I have uh, questions about how the uh, coronavirus pandemic is affecting the economy and the things the uh, administration is doing, and what we might expect going forward. And um, I've seen you know people, especially on Twitter, kind of with some things that saying things that seem to me wrong but maybe i'm wrong because i don't know anything to begin with uh, so okay so i guess uh, the first thing i'll ask is uh, how do you uh, how would you grade like the the administration's response so far we're taping this on uh wednesday april 1st uh things are moving fast but are they is this the first you know a good first step is this all they need to do or not enough by far what would you say I mean, it's a hard question to ask, so, so I'll say it, I'll answer it in a couple of different ways. So relative to what um, happened in 2008, I can say that this is, this is definitely a vastly improved response on, on every level. So both what, you know, the federal government itself is doing, what the Federal Reserve is doing, uh, the speed at which they're doing it, and the, like, lack, I guess, of pushback that they're getting um, – from politicians for doing it. Uh, the scale of the crisis is difficult to determine, mm-hmm. um, and it looks more and more massive every day. I mean, I think early on, I mean, there were some people, myself included, so I think it's going to be, be potentially really massive. Um, like, I think two weeks ago, maybe, Goldman Sachs was saying that we may only get like a 5% drop in GDP. They moved to a 30% drop, and so that's more consistent with what I thought uh, might happen. Um, they're still on decide that, well, maybe everything will, will recover and rebound um, right after we defeat the pandemic. I'm less confident about that. Um, and so I think more will have to be done. Um, I think that it may wind up being like an enormous economic challenge on the scale of, I mean, in many ways greater than the Great Recession, but in terms of like having to ramp up our policy response, <clears throat> you know, on the scale of the Great Recession. And it remains to be seen whether or not we'll do that, but uh, the first signs are encouraging. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. I think probably if things go my way, much more will need to be done. But I'm 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 pleasantly surprised as much was done so far as has been. Okay, um, yeah, that that makes sense. Okay, so one of the things, and you and please correct me if I get any of these facts wrong. One of the things that the Federal Reserve did was it injected uh, like 1.5 trillion in liquidity, money, uh, something into the banking system. And I saw people online saying things like, 
wait, they say we can't have Medicare for all, but the banks can get $1.5 trillion. Um, right. And so that's not right. Is that right. correct? Like, it's not real. Yeah, so the, it's not like so they the, gave the, them a bunch of dollar bills or something. No, no. I mean, um, so <clears throat> all the things that the Federal Reserve does are loans. So they can't give – this is a big distinction, really important that, you know, uh, we even get kind of technical about um, – the Federal Reserve can only loan people money. It can't like give people money. They always have to give it back. And in fact, the Federal Reserve can't even loan people money that it's like 99 point some percent sure will pay it back unless the Treasury gives it permission. So the Treasury has to give it what's called loss provisions. The like the like the Treasury has to authorize them to like lose a certain amount of money or, or risk losing a certain amount of money. And so with the banks, when they did the $1.5 trillion, that was a loan that we call um, a repurchase agreement. Um, the simple way to put it is that it's a loan for three days. And it's a loan for three days that you have to put up collateral for. And usually the collateral, the collateral then was a treasury bond. So if I give you, you know, a million dollars in treasury bonds, then the Federal Reserve will give me a million dollars in cash for three days, and then we change back. And they give me back my bonds, and I give them back their cash. So it amounts to a three-day loan, fully collateralized. Um, so there's essentially no risk at all that the Federal Reserve is, is undertaking. Um, and so that's what you have. So that's what makes it much, much different than, than paying for something where you would, you would expend that money and never get it back. You know, you, so. Okay. So is that like <laughs> – kind of like a, is this like an accounting gimmick because it because like or like how or is this, is this just a way to kind of say like everything's gonna be fine but but really not that much change it's just like the, the federal reserve is like instilling fortitude in the banks or is that not, not the case uh so i think it's a little bit more than that i mean so <clears throat> it's hard to imagine but like the the payment system in America like swaps, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars a day, right? Uh, and so some of the way I've explained it is, all right, when you go and buy something at the store, what you're really doing, use, almost everybody uses a card. What you're really doing is giving the bank, your bank, an order to pay money to another bank. And say you're Bank of America and your merchant is J.P. Morgan. You're saying Bank of America, pay J.P. Morgan 50 bucks for what I just bought, right? That happens all across the country every day. And then at the end of the day, they cash out, right? So they say all Bank of America customers put this many orders into J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan put this many orders into Bank of America. And when we net it out, uh, J.P. Morgan, you owe Bank of America $200 billion. Can you please give us $200 billion in cash? Uh, and they do that every day across, like, you know, so for consumer banks, for businesses banks, for business banks, for the banks that are lending on Wall Street, they're all doing that, cashing out at the end of the day. Um, and so they can end up short on cash. And you have to settle at the end of every day in cash. Um, you, well, so what is take... that? Does cash mean <laughs> there's Scrooge McDuck, like, like, gold coins or, or dollar bills or something or is it all it all just exists it, electronically even though it, it is like real money it all exists electronically but inside the banking system there is called reserve accounts and so a reserve account is like tracked by the federal reserve like the federal reserve knows exactly how much there is in total reserve accounts and that's what banks use to swap between them is in the reserve account and the reserve account like represents like a dollar bill it's just an electric version of a dollar bill. Like mm -hmm. if you get the dollar bill, it says Federal Reserve note $1. And so then you just have like a digital version of Federal Reserve $10, but it has to be like authorized by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve tracks where all reserves go. And so, um, you know, that's, 
basically like digital cash. It's like okay. digital cash. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. So, okay. So, so the, so the answer is that it's not like, you know, people saying, why can't we do green new deal? If the federal, the federal reserve is giving all this money to the rich people at the banks, that's, that's not accurate. It's, it's a loan and it's a very short, <laughs> a three day loan is as short term as you can get more or less. Um, so, okay. So a part of the, um, uh, the the bill that was passed is uh, like a stimulus check. I, I the, the, it's only one for this one. There were some that it would be a couple, but it, is it? It's only one. It's like twelve hundred dollars. I guess everyone who like filed a tax return a year ago or two years ago is gonna conceivably get one of these checks. So that made some people start thinking about you know Andrew Yang's UBI proposal of a thousand dollars every month, and you know who, like we there's no way to know right now how long this crisis is going to last. And if they're giving us, if they give us one of these checks every two months or so, like, it starts to kind of seem like a UBI thing. And then it can be hard to, uh, like, once you start giving people stuff from the government, it can be hard to take it away from them if they get used to it. Um, so this is all a way to ask, like, what do you think of this, of just cu- cutting checks in this crisis? And then, uh, you know, going forward, why not just keep on <laughs> cutting checks uh, to make people, uh, you know, make people's lives better anyway? Um, so I think cutting checks in the crisis uh, is probably good. I mean, there are a number of different, there are a number of different ways that we could deal with it. I mean, so um, we already talk about this, but like, you know, our biggest concern is that uh, a lot of economic activity is uh, forcibly shut down. So easily people who work at bars, restaurants, places like that, you know, they can't go to work at all. In most places, there's some level of stay at home order, which means that unless you can remote work, uh, you can't come into work. Maybe unless you're an essential worker in certain sectors, you can't come into work. Um, some employers are keeping you on payroll. Some people work by the hour, and so they're not going to get any money. And so all across the economy, we're afraid that people might be short on cash. Um, but they have, like, bills to pay. And so there wanted to be some effort to give out cash indiscriminately because there was no way to really track in real time like who's affected. Um, and it was hard because like, it's, it's not that much, uh, for most people. I mean, I think we did some, um, some calculations. And so for people near the poverty line, I mean, if if it, if you're a single mother with two children, you get $1,200, plus you get $500 for each kid. So that's $2,200. And for one month, um, for people near the poverty line, that actually turns out to make a big difference. Um, and so for people who are really scraping by, it, it could make a big difference for most people. Um, it'll be a bump, but it's not going to, you know, I mean, like in the cities, it's not going to, it's not even going to pay your mortgage, but like, um, but, but for a lot of people who are, who are poor, it will. And it's impossible to know exactly which one of those people are affected in exactly which way. So this was the idea behind the blanket check. And it was a way to like, give us at least a month or so, uh, some cash out there for everyone so that, um, we could then figure out what to do next. Um, the hope, the big hope of what's going to be next or whatever, um, is this, these uh, small business administration loans, which are essentially going to give businesses enough money to keep their payroll for four months, even if they don't have any business coming in the door. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, they have to have, um, I think it's at this point, 75%. At one point, it was 90% of their payroll that they had at the beginning of March. They have to keep that all the way through 
the four months. So if they can keep 90% of the people on, then they get this loan that will pay for the payroll the entire time. And the idea there is that even businesses that don't have any revenue coming in because they have no customers, they'll be able to keep people working and that will, that will um, give people money to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. And then there's a third part, which is the unemployment insurance boost, um, which is added on to whatever regular unemployment insurance is, is an extra $600 a week, which is calculated to be 40 hours a week at $15 an hour. Um, and so anybody who goes on unemployment gets their regular unemployment insurance plus for another four months, an extra $600 a week. And so those three measures together were supposed were what's going to be hopefully to take us at least through this month and maybe the, a couple of more months. So you have people who lose their jobs outright. They're getting some amount of cash that like will keep them out of poverty. Uh, businesses hopefully will not lay as many people off because they're getting these loans and everybody just gets a smattering in case we miss someone. <laughs> it's kind of the idea, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't know. So is that, are you, are you discouraged by this? Do you think it's, uh, I mean, bad? that, that seems, that seems, decent um i mean so i mean part of the okay so i guess you know the unemployment is based on your salary so that can be different based on where you live so you know one thing i've seen is um uh people saying uh, especially if you live in new york city uh rent is very expensive and you could be you know a bartender and still be like renting a studio for fifteen hundred dollars a month or something if if your income is is suddenly reduced to zero twelve hundred dollars uh, it's not. I saw a tweet from someone saying, "I might as well just hand this check to my landlord," and that actually right. g- goes to like the, the next another area I want to ask about, which is um, paying rent, paying paying mortgages, and this idea of of a rent strike that that people are talking about, um, at least online. And I feel like, you know, so it's obvious that like if you have no money coming in, you can't pay your rent, and if you right. just have a little bit of money paying coming in, you're going to pay for food, not not your rent like that, you know, f- uh, food <laughs> comes first. And and then maybe there's people who uh, could pay some p- part of their rent, but not the entire thing. Um, you know, if, if, if I was thinking about it and it seems like if there is some sort of massive coordinated or not rent strike, uh, it could kind of lead to the same thing that happened in 2008, like a, a eventually like banks start going under because, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of uh, people online who don't like landlords, but right. the landlord probably um, is paying a mortgage, right? right? Not not just like sitting on a bunch of cash and like driving a Cadillac. And so if, right. if the landlord can't get the rent, then eventually they can't pay their mortgage. They can't pay the mortgage. The banks are not getting money. And and some, you know, these mortgages are sometimes sliced and diced and that and split up into securities in various ways. And we saw what happened with that in 2008. But um you know, eventually, like the the banks are relying on the mortgage checks coming in, and if those stop coming, then you have like a banking crisis. And as we saw in two thousand eight, the government is probably going to step in and save the banks if they're if the big banks are threatening to go under. Um, and then, so that I, I so does, does that chain of logic make sense? It does make sense, and I mean, I think that the potential for that crisis is there, and um, there's some action that's being taken with it. So I I don't actually know how far they got on this, but. Um, I think they did. The FHA suspended um, sort of foreclosure. So if you have a loan through certain, you know, uh, government agencies, uh, then you're not going to get a foreclosure for for two months, uh, and they're able to do that. So the FHA is like wholly owned by by the government. Um, the Federal Reserve is sort of like working with banks to encourage them to give people uh, forbearance. I mean, um, 
the way the system works, I mean, we can't like force them to do it, but um, they have additional sort of lending programs that go like this, that will, the Federal Reserve will loan, say, again, Bank of America or Wells Fargo money at 0% interest if what it will do is you know, take forbearance on mortgages and other types of loans through this crisis. And I think, I think, I can't remember what the take up rate is. Actually, I think Bank of America, uh, ironically, was one of the banks, few banks who didn't, <laughs> who didn't immediately sign on to that. But, uh, but a lot of banks did. And so um, I don't think it's automatic. I think you have to ask for it. You have to ask for it. And like, usually these things, you have to write a letter, like, like saying what your problem is. And theoretically, they could check, but like, there are hundreds of this thousands of letters. A mortgage, a mortgage holder. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, so I'm a landlord. I bought, you know, a small, like, you know, uh, fourplex or something, and I'm renting it out. Um, I write a letter to Wells Fargo that says, you know, my tenants have been laid off because of uh, the crisis. We won't have any rent for, you know, coming in for this month for next month. Can you, uh, you like forbear my mortgage? So it just means that, like, we don't do payments for these couple months. Um, we still tack those payments on the end, so you're not you're like getting out of them, but we'll just wait a couple of months. Uh, and many banks have agreed basically en masse to do that, right? I mean, so there are standards, like, you know, they, and I said, like, in theory, you know, they can check to make sure, but usually in these types of mass things, there's, there's just no logistical way they can check up on everybody. They, they don't even have time to give everybody a phone call. So usually, you know, at least at first, everybody who asks gets it. And it's not hard. I mean, the, the truth is in foreclosures, um, the standard practice is to give you like a month or two if you ask for it anyway, um, just because it's once you enter a foreclosure process, it's extremely difficult, like for the bank and they go to court and all this kind of stuff. So like if there's any chance that you might be able to catch up, they'd much rather you do that than like go through all the legal hassle of it. Um, and this sort of just formalizes that and gives them cash to sort of like hold them over. Uh, so I think right now they're operating on like a 60-day sort of thing, and there's comfort that you know um, we'll find a way through this. Like in, the interest rates are really low, so the the baseline interest rate in the economy we call the Fed funds rate is zero, zero um, percent interest. So every interest rate on top of that is stacked according to like risk and duration and all that kinds of stuff. But like the the total risk-free or the the bottom risk-free rate of interest for a very short amount of time, it actually ends up being just one day, is 0%. And so that means that every other interest rate is pretty low too. Um, the banks, that's effectively what they pay if they need money um, is, is 0% right now, a uh, little bit more than that, um, transactions costs and stuff. And so they can handle this time, you know, uh, without necessarily going under. So that's the hope. Uh, that's the hope among all this. Um, that it won't cause like a, a crisis because even if there's not a strike, an outright strike, there's just concern that there are potentially millions of people who won't have the money to pay. Um, and, you know, what are you going to do about that? So you have to somehow I think the, the term that we use at the beginning is, is freeze financial time. So like uh, that's really difficult. You know, the financial system depends on regularity and things happening, you know, when they're scheduled to happen. But as much as possible, the Federal Reserve was trying to freeze financial time for as long as it could. It's going to try to do it right now for like 60 days and see what happens. Um, and then maybe by the end of the 60 days, we'll have better, <laughs> better ideas than we have now. It's generally how that works. So, yeah. Um, OK, yeah, that yeah, that makes sense. And so there's, there's also the um, the you know, like 
human suffering aspect of, of, of this angle, which is that you get, okay, so, so if people can't pay their rent, and if that goes on for a couple of months, usually the landlord evicts them. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, if, if there's no way they can work at all, uh, then um, that, you know, that's a shitty thing to do to someone. And right. also, um, you know, you might get, especially in this age when anything can go viral, uh, landlords are evicting people um, willy-nilly will probably get really bad press. And also filling the apartments again with other people. See, like, the, since the whole system is kind of locked up right now, that seems unlikely. So hopefully landlords will like have you know just kind of a a system worked out individually with their tenants where be like okay this is you know a century defining (laughs) emergency right now like you could skip three months and we'll figure it out later or or something like that um so okay so you know i'll just say one thing to that just because you brought it up so like in the like bucket of you know random people we might have missed you know, so this is a common thing here in D.C. and not common, but it's a thing that can happen. So we have a lot of uh, a lot of townhouses that have um, a basement apartment and then uh, a larger sort of house on top in the basement apartment. And so say that you're, you know, a little old lady <laughs> who had this townhouse. And then what you did is you moved into the basement and rented on top. And then you use the rent as just like your money. Right. And now your tenant can't pay because, you know, they lost their job or whatever. Um because you weren't employed to begin with, you're not getting unemployment. Um, there's no there's no business to send you payroll, uh, and so you wouldn't be included in any of those other programs. Uh, but you still get a $1,200 check, so maybe it'll help you out. I mean, that's kind of like some of the some of the random holes mm-hmm. that it's hoping to fill in the economy. If there's like a if there's like a landlord who's depending on rent to like to to eat, you know, to, to, to feed themselves. But yeah, but go ahead. I think you're going somewhere else with this. Well, I was just thinking, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, something that we, uh, heard about, uh, starting in the, with the 2008 crisis after stimulus was passed was these fears of inflation. And right. so, um, you know, the, the, this new stimulus is like two and a half times as big as the previous one. The, you know, the, the fed is, is dropping, uh, to zero. So seemingly banks can borrow money, uh, at no risk whatsoever. Um, and, and there were, there were people, especially on the right who were saying like, you know, inflation is coming, we're going to become Zimbabwe, um, you know, printing, printing dollar bills and and they'll, you'll be having like wheelbarrows in the street in order to buy something. So this was a lot of scaremongering and then basically like inflation to stay low this entire time. Um, right. is it, is it now that, um, you know, the, the, like the econ- real economy is, is ground to a halt and, but they're giving everyone money. Um, is there, could inflation actually come now or are we still like it's it's still basically like we kind of figured out how to prevent that uh so inflation in the in the way that economists mean is probably not going to come so like a general increase in overall prices over like a sustained period of time uh that's probably not going to happen just because people are collapsing their spending um what you see is that like you know this is the problem that banks had when a crisis like this happens uh, people try to like hold more cash. Everybody like wants to have more cash on hand, uh, and so that is essentially like where the money goes, right? Rather than spending, and so we've seen we're spending, seeing spending overall in the economy collapse, and unless spending overall is rising, uh, it's hard for prices to rise overall. Now, what what I am more concerned about is that in particular areas that you could see price spikes, um, and we're not, I mean. We're, we haven't exactly figured out what we're going to do about that. So, for example, you have an enormous drop in spending in anything related to entertainment, 
uh, eating out and stuff like that. But then you have an enormous increase in spending on groceries, right? Uh, and so that's putting an enormous strain on the grocers to like um, uh, fulfill all these orders, to hire more workers. Uh, now they have uh, their workers potentially going on strike and in, in some cases asking for um, double wages. And so if, if that goes through, there will be like price spikes in groceries, I would think. So, I mean, and the, the only reason I say that is because I think that there's some recognition that this might be a problem, um, at least for certain consumers who, you know, the groceries are a big portion of their budget. It also, there's fear, quite honestly, that it'll be an optics problem. If like certain things start spiking in price, it'll make people think that we could have like this big, you know, surge of inflation that's going to come. Uh, and so there's thought about how, how to deal with this or, or what might be our, our way through this, whether they're going to be like an additional, some additional like loans to keep grocery prices down. I mean, it gets complicated. It gets very complicated trying to keep the whole thing uh, in stasis while asking um, lots of people not to work. Um, I was, and I don't know if your viewers will think this, makes makes me a horrible person but <laughs> i i was concerned a little bit about the blanket um six hundred dollars simply because I, I i was arguing that that a lot of people in dc frame this as we're telling everybody to go home and not work but we're not telling everybody to go home there's some people who are going to be asking to work a lot more, and especially anybody who's got to do with delivery, anybody who's got to do with food, anybody who's got to do with medicine, like all of those people are going to be asked to work a lot more. And um, if we like take away all their support staff, we take away like all of their hourly workers because you know they've gotten laid off from Macy's and now they've gone on unemployment. The unemployment is a lot more than than Whole Foods or anybody else could possibly pay them or I guess possibly pay them on their current price structure. Then there's no pool for uh, for Whole Foods to like draw its workers for. There's even concern that there might not be pools for like hospitals to draw their workers from because obviously they're doctors and nurses. Everybody knows about doctors and nurses, but you know somebody's got to clean the floor, somebody's got to take out the trash. Somebody, you know, like there are tons of like like just basic jobs that are required to keep a facility going. Um, and as more patients come through, you need more of those people. So where are you going to get them from? Um, and so you know I was I was concerned that you know we, we should we should at least make it make it what uh profitable for people who can work who are healthy to work to work but um but i mean that has a side effect of you know um we wanted to make sure that everybody was taken care of um no matter what their situation was and the easiest way to do that was just to like max up you know these unemployment benefits you know really high so right but i mean the another complicated <laughs> factor to that is that the, mm -hmm. the people who are drawn out of their home to go work at Whole Foods or something could catch the uh, virus while they're they out, out and about. And then they're another person that the doctors have to deal with or, and they can spread it to more people. So yeah, it's, 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 um, it's a very complicated uh, problem. Okay. So, so something else that happened after the financial crisis was um, uh, some countries uh, pivoted to austerity and, right. um, and I think a lot of a lot of people, at least uh, the liberals and people on the left, thought that was a huge mistake. And these were huge, you know, these were giant debates in Anglo Merkel and the, the euro and Greece and all the stuff that you maybe remember talking about on blogging heads, uh, you know, ten or twelve years ago. But um, do you now it kind of so we're we're still in kind of like the free spending phase of this. Uh, 
and you know the the the, the bill passed the senate with 96 to zero and uh, and it was like a voice vote in the house or something so everyone is essentially on board at this point they realize it's a huge crisis but it's not, but you know there's this um either like this basic human idea that we have to eventually tighten our belts or like we actually do have to tighten our belts it's, un- it's unclear to me whether this was like a delusion all along but i remember i remember a lot of people getting mad at uh, at Obama when he said like you know we have to tighten our belts or something at some point in like 2011 uh, the people being like the Matt Iglesias types because they were saying like no this is like you know we can print money <laughs> we're, we're, we can't go, we're never gonna go bankrupt spend 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 um, so do you think like and so we're the thing the first part of this pass is already two and a half times size of the you know 2008-2009 stimulus is there gonna be like a giant like austerity uh, push you know, a year from now, once the 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 outbreak has is subsided, hopefully. Um, I don't see how there's not right. So, I mean, this is something that I'm, I've already started to think about, and at Tax Foundation, I started to try to get you know some of my people to work on is like, you know, uh, what will we do about that? What will respond about that? I mean, my my position as an you know as an economist is for the United States, there's there's essentially no danger here um i mean uh there are some maybe really wild you know things you can think of but even before you get to printing money right just to pay for all of this um the demand for u.s bonds is so huge that like four trillion ten trillion i mean even if we do so we have about 20 trillion outstanding already if we double that to 40 trillion it's very likely that um people would buy them and it's especially likely in a crisis. And so one of the things that we do to measure how bad a crisis is, is we look at the interest rate on U.S. bonds. And so the more people want to buy bonds, uh, that drives up the price. I don't know if I want to go through all this, but when the price of bonds goes up, the yield or interest rate on the bonds goes down. And so when yields on government bond, U.S. government bonds are falling, that means that lots of people are trying to buy them, right? If you see that happening, that very thing is a sign of a crisis. Uh, and it's a sign of a crisis because uh, the U- U.S. Treasury bonds are you know, the safest bonds in the world. Um, the United States is the largest economy in the world. Um, a thing that I used to say all the time was, um, if the United States goes bankrupt, then that's so devastating to the rest of the world that there's no way you could be safe. And so you might as well be in U.S. Treasury bonds because, you know, whatever else you're in, um, you know, German bonds, gold even, uh, it's not going to do well in a world in which the United States goes bankrupt. And so, um, so there's no risk to it, and there's no net risk to the United States going bankrupt. Uh, so that's where there's an enormous amount of demand, especially when there's a crisis. It's unlikely that that huge demand is going to abate anytime soon. So the U.S. has just like, like no problem. Um, some other countries might have a problem that if they didn't have enough uh, foreign buyers or even investors to buy their bonds, um, their own like central banks, their equivalent of the Fed would have to buy them. In order for the Fed to buy them, the Fed would have to print money. In theory, that could cause inflation. Now, we live in a low inflation world, so that's not a huge problem for most people, but that's the problem that you could get. Um, the people who are probably the most screwed are some of the countries in Europe who don't have their own central bank. They're dependent on the European Central Bank. And so, for example, Italy, who's in a lot of trouble. So Italy borrows a lot of money. They sell a lot of bonds. If there are not enough investors for their bonds, they can't just order 
the ECB to buy the bonds, to print money and buy the bonds. They have to ask the ECB to do so. And last time around, the ECB for a long time said no. <laughs> and if it says no, then there's a chance that there won't be any buyers. And if there aren't any buyers, the price goes down, the interest rate goes up, and then they have huge interest payments that they can't make. And so they could conceivably go bankrupt. But what I had argued back then is just that there's, there's no advantage to the ECB to saying no, um, and they should just do whatever it takes to get Italy and Greece and these other countries through the crisis. And eventually they capitulated, and, and that's what they did. So I think that like having learned that lesson, they're probably going to be willing to do that this time. And so the United States and Europe and the other major economies don't have a fundamental economic need to go to austerity. I do think that there'll be a strong psychological need to go to it. Um, we've just seen that every single time. Um, and so we're just, you know, trying to be prepared for it and seeing if we can, you know, handle it in the least destructive way uh, possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. in, in 2009, there was this kind of like morality play aspect to it, where it was like there, there were these countries that were profligate like Greece mm -hmm. or like, or there were people who uh, made poor uh, financial decisions, like taking out a mortgage on a house they couldn't afford. And so those people need to like take their medicine and learn mm -hmm. a lesson and blah, blah, blah. This situation seems very different in right. that, um, you know, the, I'm sure, well, I'm sure people, there'll be, be people trying to spin a morality play kind of story of like how China was the evil country in this and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, you, it, it's not like, yeah, Italy, you like take your medicine now and you'll, you'll like learn, learn a lesson for next time. Like this is a, a, a novel, um, no pun intended, uh, shock to the system that was, uh, you know, no one's fault that we can really, uh, pin, pin the blame on in like the macro sense. So, so that kind right. of like moralistic, you know, the, the people in Greece, they never paid their taxes. They all had swimming pools and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That thing we heard 10 years ago, that seems like it doesn't apply now, though maybe people will find narratives along those lines to create, you know, villains and, and, and stuff like that as this, as this rolls out. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think that that sort of morality play is, is not as, in, uh, is not as strong this time. Um, but, and in the United States, we just think about the United States, there was that again, there was that backlash against, um, TARP, which was basically to save the banks. There was that backlash against, um, I forget exactly what it's called, but like the home mortgage thing that, that Obama passed to sort of save, uh, mortgage people. Um, but you, you saw that like a lot of centrist economists and, you know, certainly to the left people were were not for that. They were like, look, we need to save these homeowners. But then by 2010, 2011, you know, Obama himself, many people who regard as centrist were saying, well, okay, we did that. That was great. But the way this works is that you spend to help people in a crisis. And then once the crisis is over, then you need to like build back up your reserves. And that requires you know, raising taxes, cutting spending, doing whatever it is to to balance the budget. The argument I know that Matt had and I had at the time was that the crisis isn't really over, <laughs> that like we haven't recovered, that like um, even though we're not falling, we still have tens of millions of people who are unemployed. And if we were willing to push the economy harder, it could grow and employ more people. And so there was a massive fight over, is that true? You know, maybe the economy is as good as it can get. This is the time. And then there was just a, a, a sort of 
old school centrist feeling that like look, there's a time like you know there's a time to be responsible and so i think that that pushed people to do that i'm not i don't i don't, I don't those people aren't gone they're they're sending me emails now so like okay. you know <laughs> so, so I don't, they, I don't, they I don't, still think they're i mean so it's it's like so th- okay so so i remember there's this whole thing about like uh, this theory that like structural unemployment had like, like there's a skills gap and, and um, you know, mm. maybe unemployment is going to be like stuck at eight and a half percent going forward right. because of, uh, you know, machinery and you know, technology and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so that, and that seems to have been proven false, you know, it like lowered, it like went down slowly to like three and a half oh. before all this started. Um, and so those people seemingly were proven wrong, but like the, you know, people who advocated for the Iraq war, there's, you know, zero um, accountability in punditry or, or most other things uh, once you reach, reach a certain level in American life. And so, uh, you know, the, the ideas, <laughs> the ideas, the zombie ideas like float out there. Um, so, okay. So one, okay. So something that, okay. So, so, you know, there's this thing that's called like the defense procurement act or something where, where, um, uh, the president can order the production of like specific things or, or order order factories to start making a specific thing or take a certain contract from the government. Uh, that's, you know, the idea was like, if we need to start making, you know, missiles or something on short notice that we can order this thing. And apparently it's been used hundreds of thousands of times for all the for all sorts of Pentagon orders. But um, so it, it seems like Trump has started to do this maybe a little bit with, you know, uh, having uh, GM or GE uh, manufacture ventilators and you can imagine other things there's these you know we seem to have not enough masks and and plastic gowns and stuff like this um so we're kind of like and, and then trump called himself like a, a wartime president i think in the past couple of days or something along those lines so do, do you see that could there, could we be moving towards like a temporary kind of like wartime or command economy uh where you have all these people out of work who have to stay in their homes and then like people in factories who are making masks and um ventilators uh that are desperately needed in hospitals and then you know the other you know food production and so forth is is assured but it's like you know bureaucrats in washington are deciding what uh you know the commanding heights of the economy are are turning out uh no i mean like so i just don't think the administration is going to do that so like um you know the uh, the Pentagon uses this a lot because sometimes there are things that they're the only you know uh, buyer for, so they're the only buyer for it. And it turns out that maybe there's only like one supplier, uh, and then you get into a problem where like the supplier could just hold you up, right? Could be like, yeah, really, it's going to cost you know however many you know billions of dollars for this thing and we're the only supplier and you know you need this and you know there's not even another market so you know you'll pay this or or, or we're done okay. and in fact and in fact the the pentagon is known for overpaying i mean they, they that's they're, they're famous for that right. um and so they generally use they generally use the act to sort of say okay this has just gone far enough i mean we've overpaid you but like now you're just getting insane and uh and so stop um, and, and also it's a backstop in negotiations like to keep that from happening, to say, well, look, if this goes too far, we're just going to invoke DPA. Um, so uh, the argument that the Trump administration had, and I, I think this is actually mostly turned out to be true, is that like um, because of the crisis and simply for PR reasons and maybe for humanitarian reasons, most companies were were willing to – you know, try to like strike a reasonable price. Um, supposedly, and this is only just like r- random things I've read in um, New York Times. I don't have any sort of no inside information on this, but supposedly GM was uh, giving them a really hard time, um, you know, kept upping the price, kept reducing the amount that they were going to deliver. And eventually they were like, screw it. You're now in DPA. Um, 
And then they struck a deal, and apparently, uh, you know, Ford and everybody else struck a deal too. And so, like they they haven't they haven't used it since then. But I think there's a general sense in the administration that they would um, prefer not to do it. Um, the Pentagon, like whatever you think of Pentagon procurement, um, they have a long history with basically working in this extremely tight market with like only a couple of suppliers and they're the only buyer. Um, and so they know what they're doing. Um, but like FEMA doesn't. And I mean, it, it's not really clear. I mean, like you don't necessarily know as a director of FEMA, how many like ventilators, in fact, the Ohio plant and GM can make. I mean, you do need some sort of deal there. You could get some sense that like, you're screwing me now. Like, you know, like I, like I might not know exactly how this works, but I, but, but, but this is, you know, you're screwing me now, but like in a general day-to-day sense, um, you don't know. And so, and so I think for the most part, they're trying to rely on negotiation. And I, I think that's for the most part appropriate. So that's my take on it. Um, I think some people are just, some people would rather see Trump like invoke it more um, simply like, I guess out of a sense of sentiment that this is that this is this is wartime now and like nobody should be screwing around just like get with it. But it's, but it, I think it's more complicated than that. I just don't think that we necessarily have the expertise to sort of guide you know the production, especially the switching of production from making one thing to making another thing at a particular factory and deliver in a particular time and know like what what should be ordered or what should be like commanded from the government. So I think it's best if we stick away from that as as much as can we can. Okay, so you do not foresee any sort of like nationalizing the ventilator manufacturer or the mask no. manufacturer or anything like that. No, 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 no. yeah, I don't think that's good. I mean, the administration is just extremely, you know, like not on that, not on that page. So I don't think that they're going to do that. Yeah. Um. Well, okay, so they've delayed income tax filing by two months, I think. Three months? Two months? Mm-hmm. Um, is this going to affect anything besides make it easier for people? Like, does the, does the federal government need our, you know, I guess they have the money already because, you know, we, we pay it in the FICA taxes or whatever. But um, is is there any actual uh, effect here or is this just like making it easier, easier for people to who are very, you know, stressed out right now? Uh, there's no real effect for the government. I mean, it's it's just to. I mean, in fact, you know, you can you can always get your filing delayed. Uh, I think till October or whatever if you want it. You just have to ask for it. Um, and uh, what they do is they make you pay interest. And so now they just made it so okay, everybody's automatically to pay delayed and nobody pays interest. So it's not really a big deal from their point of view. Um, you know. Okay. okay yeah, 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 that makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, let's. Okay. So. so it, it, what's weird about this, I mean, there's many things that are weird about this, but like usually like, like say there was like a natural disaster, like, you know, the San Francisco 1906 earthquake or something that like leveled everything. And then they have to like rebuild everything. So that's a huge amount of economic activity required to do all this rebuilding, you know, and, or it's something that like 2008 with, which in my understanding had all, you know, there are all these, you know, mortgages that turned out were worth a lot less. And so, you know, money went, uh, the banks thought they had money they, that they didn't actually have. Like, like this is kind of this, you know, it's like an asteroid hit or something, but like nothing is, nothing is destroyed. Like all the factories are still there. Everyone is still, you know, the, some people have died obviously, but most people are still uh, able to work and hiding in their houses. You know, let's say the, the we get a vaccine or something um, or the, the, the virus kind of just like fades away through herd immunity or something like that. How, like, do you think, how long do you think before we start moving back up? Is it, can people just walk back into their factory 
and start making stuff again? Or is everyone going to be like psychologically damaged from being inside for so long that they don't want to buy anything? So I think, you know, uh, this is a massive debate now, like among economists is, you know, what's what's going to happen afterwards. Right. And so one possibility is essentially what you were saying at the beginning is that uh, the pandemic's over. It's safe to go outside again. You go back to your jobs. People go back to buying what they they were. And the economy just sort of like restarts. Uh, and we would call that like a, a V-shaped recovery. Um, the fear is that there are a couple of reasons why that won't happen. One is just that um, once you take apart businesses, so so workers leave, they you know they're they're laid off, they go do other things, you know they may have like family that they go with, they move to other states, or they do whatever they're going to do like uh, in response to that. That putting the business back together uh, is a really difficult exercise, and it's a really difficult exercise because like all businesses are like interdependent. And so before the restaurant can get put back together, then like, you know, the supplier, the food supplier has to get put back together. And before they can get back to put back together, you know, uh, whatever other companies they depend on have to get put back together and simultaneously making that happen um, proves problematic. And so uh, there's a concern among a lot of economists that if we get a lot of separations, if we get a lot of people like actually leaving their jobs, like, getting them all back to the right jobs and the right businesses, you know, and to keep everything going forward uh, will be a complicated process that could take a long time. Uh, so that's, that's number one. And that's actually the reason for the payroll support thing is to say, you know, essentially, you know, don't fire anybody that way, you know, they'll, they know they have a job that they're coming back to um, and we won't have to like sort everything out again and try to figure out who we're going to hire and where they went and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So just keep everybody on payroll. And if that works, it could limit that to some extent. The other thing, and we're trying to stop that too, is uh, there could be like various credit issues that people have, right? So, um, so some businesses, you know, uh, despite whatever we do, or, you know, even already before, uh, this legislation passed, you know, had to like default on things. Uh, some restaurants just shut down and said, we're done. Um, and so the more people who have like these financial problems, the harder it is to restructure because they would then have to, you know, completely restart that business again or get out from underneath whatever financial difficulty they had. Um, and so there's, there's, I think there's concern about, there's concern about that. And then the third element is, those two things happening, even if they were sort of a solvable problem, they create an enormous amount of uncertainty. And uncertainty does exactly what you were saying, in, you know, in the latter part, which is make everybody uh, reluctant to spend. So you don't know exactly what we're going to face, like when we when we get out. You don't know, you know, like um, if the person you were in business with before is still there or how how well they're operating. And so you hold back on investment. You hold back on hiring someone new. Um, consumers are a little bit more careful about their cash. And then that causes a sustained recession. So those three factors, taking apart businesses, financial disruption, and then uncertainty caused by those two things are what make us fear sort of like an L. Um, and early in the crisis, I think when we thought, um, I don't know what we were thinking, to be honest, but like, <laughs> but like we, there was this idea, I know I was, I was floating with or whatever. Uh, we thought we, maybe we could be over with the, everything by May. And we were like, if we can just get a huge burst of like summer spending, like maybe we can like, you know, power through it and make it a V like that, you know, uh, 
businesses would see so much demand that they would be like, all right, you know, sure, I'll hire everybody back, you know, that I had before. And if you've got a brother, bring him too. And <laughs> and then uh, and, and then and then there would be a V-shaped recovery. It's it's looking less like that now. I mean, we've had huge numbers of people going unemployment already. Um, we know that this thing is going to last through May. Uh, I guess according to the best projections, it'll be over then. I don't know if like how much business will be like just ramp back up, just starting back up, or if there'll be a period where people are still hesitant to go out. And so it, now I'm more in the camp of uh, at best it's going to be a fight to get back up, and at worst it could be you know another long shallow thing like we had after after the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you, well, you make me think of, you know, so the, the, on the first point, one, so one thing that's different is like, people are generally not moving right now because in some cases it's illegal right. and where are you going to go? Because it's everywhere. Um, so it's not like the Okies going to California or something like right, right. the workforces are at least for now, seemingly are still geographically in the same place. Um, so maybe that's an upside, but then, you know, if we imagine how, normal life reasserts itself like you know i think we've all uh, realized uh, how much of normal life involves uh t- touching other people with your hands or touching objects out in the world with your hands or breathing near someone you don't know and so if you know we are also freaked out that there's still pockets of this out there that you know we don't want to go into a store or a restaurant or whatever even though the experts say it's okay then that's obviously bad that'd be bad for everyone uh right. involved likewise so so yeah so i guess it I don't know. It's, it's, it's very unpredictable. Okay, maybe this will, uh, we've been going for about 50 minutes. Maybe this will be the last thing I have. Uh, what is, I mean, what are you like most worried about um, at this point? Uh, it's something that we haven't mentioned uh, perhaps that, that is looming out there or something that concerns you. Um, like with the pandemic overall or just the well, either, yeah, either, either the economic side of it or the whole, the whole thing. So, I mean, I think, you know, what has to be the biggest worry in the whole thing is that we'll get uh, a respike um, in like uh, either. So after the summer, I think it's probably the most dangerous thing. I, th- I think I've been pretty well convinced that like the, the, the summer will be better. Um, and the respike could be like much worse because uh, for the original pandemic, there were like seeds that came in. So people who had it, like, you know, a few people came in New York and in Seattle and these places and it slowly grew. Well, if there's a respike, then, then what you're thinking is that there, there are a few people like in every community, right, who have it. And then if it respikes, then there's like a blow up everywhere at the same time. And so the respike can happen faster than the original spike did because the seeds are like more dispersed like throughout the economy. So I think pandemic wise, that's the biggest fear. Um, economically, it would be that we had like, you know, a lot of uncertainty coming out of this, an L-shaped recession, and then uh, the same sort of you know, pullback that we had last time, both on monetary policy, people saying, well, look, it was okay for the Fed to have. So right now the Fed is, is open up to lending $4 trillion. So it's lending $4 trillion. It was okay for the Fed to lend all that money to people during the crisis, but we need to pull back. Um, it was okay to spend, you know, bunches of money to get us out of the crisis, but now we need to repay it back. Um, and then we'll be stuck in the same sort of like long long recovery. And at this point, I think it could be even worse because um, so we 
we were close to the zero lower bound. I don't know if it's getting too technical. But we were, you know, the Fed didn't have a lot of interest rate room it could cut last time, but it did have some. This time it had almost none, um, and the economy is going down further. And so you would think that, like, it would need more kick to, like, get back up if it doesn't get back up on its own. And so, so like then the that Fed can't. Ha- the Fed can't have like negative interest rates. Like the Fed can't can have like, negative interest rates. Can't like right. give money, like loan someone, and then give them some extra money along, along right, with it. Right. Well, maybe it'll and, happen. Uh, Who knows? Um. Or you know, I guess a way for a way for like lay people to see this straight up is that like uh, when we had two thousand eight, you know, it was bad for everybody. But one good thing that did happen is that like you know, mortgage rates went way down, right? And so there are a lot of you out there who had mortgages. They could refinance their mortgages. They could get some, you know, they could get some more money or get at least get lower payments. Like after the crisis happened, um, and that like gave some boost um, for people who weren't completely demolished. They had some some little bit of boost. Nothing like that is like available now. Like, you know, mortgage rates are about as low as they can go. They went down some, but like the, you know, what can they do? Um, and so there's really no sort of like kick in the traditional sense that the Fed could give. Um, and if we, and we already have like unemployment spiking much faster, that this could be, you know, a lost decade for, for the United States. So, I mean, that's, that's the big fear. And I guess that's the, the, the policy goal for like our next however long is to prevent that from happening. Right. Okay. Maybe this is, I, I, I lied. I have one more question and then maybe, maybe this okay. is outside your field, but like, okay. So the, so the, the, uh, the last pandemic that was global like this was the, you know, the Spanish flu in like 1918, And then uh, after that, you know, the end, the end of world war one, there was this decade of, you know, the roaring twenties and uh, excess and the jazz age and all sorts of, you know, craziness that eventually led to the uh, great depression in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, it, it, do, it, do, what, do I, or is, what is known about the like economic effects, like after the Spanish flu ended, was it like a huge bounce back? And also because the war was over, there was a huge bounce back that led to the, the boom of the, of the 1920s or are those not connected? So I don't think they're closely connected. I mean, so you, you had a boom because of the war sort of like stopped things for a while. And especially in Europe, there was a lot of like uh, a lot of decimation, loss of life. Um, but through that period, like coming out of 1900, um, you had an enormous amount of technological change. So the world that existed in like 1890 versus the world that existed in 1920, like was radically different. Right. Um, and so I, I think that enormous amount of like technological boost was what uh, was what spurred the Roaring Twenties. In fact, we have um, like data. Some of the data goes back to um, like when the stock market crashed. The stock market ran up in the twenties and then crashed. You know, 1929. Uh, that like the value stock market values in 1929 were fairly valued for what like productivity growth was going to do over the next 20 years. So even though everybody was like, you know, this is, this is way overvalued and this is crazy and there were, you know, runs on banks and things like that, um, it really was the case that, that the United States was entering into this massive era of productivity growth where cars and, you know, electricity and everything like that, you know, was, was widespread across the country and changed, you know, just about everybody's life. Um, and so when we look at, you know, stock market values versus underlying productivity growth, which ultimately should be the source of all of, um, of, of all the value of capital, um, they were fairly valued, like at that point. Yeah. So I think most of what was pushing the roaring 20s was that coming out of the end of the 19th century, there was just so much technological change and, and people's lives were going to change. People were going to move to the cities. They weren't going to ride horses anymore. Like, like so much was going to happen. Yeah. 
Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I Carl, this is very helpful. I learned a lot. I hope our viewers and listeners uh, learned something also. Um, so you are at the Tax Foundation, and you are also on Twitter. And what is your uh, Twitter handle? Uh, Carl by Carl Smith. Carl by Carl Smith. Is that a pun or something? What does it? What does that mean? Yeah. So I mean, for years, I've had my uh, my blog or other online thing has had something to do with like fashion. Um, and it was originally a play on uh, my frustration or whatever eye roll that like the, a lot of economic theory was just fashion. Mm. Like it was just like such and such is fashionable now. So my old blog was model behavior and I had a thing before that. But there were always like fashion puns about the fact that economic theory like was was fatty. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, and I am uh, A R Y H E W uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can know, follow me. So, uh, so thank you again, and thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time. Thank you.